it's evolving and it kind of has to in order to, to survive. Welcome to the 16th episode of All of the Above, a weekly podcast about design, code, and learning. Each week, an instructional designer, a user experience designer, and a software engineer take apart the world one topic at a time. My name is Brian Brush, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Sam Bantner Hello. and Sean Duran. Hello, guys. How's it going? Good? Good? Yep. Good. I'm pretty good. Good. This week, we are joined by special guest and comrade of the show, Jacob Tinder. How are you doing, Jacob? I'm great. Wonderful. We're really happy to uh, have you here. And um, just so we can try to get a little bit of a better idea of who you are. And so our audience has an idea of who you are. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. And uh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Um, I I guess a little background on me. I kind of started working in the uh, publishing industry uh, as an editor for Under the Gun Review. Um, It's an online webzine, uh, which focuses primarily on music, but also sort of gets into movies and and everything that that involves. From there, I worked with a marketing agency called the Eisenberg Group out of California. Um, I did some community management there for brands like Electronic Arts and Yahoo Games, PopCap Games, ah, cool. um, and stuff like that. Uh, from there, I, uh, I worked as a digital content editor for Substream Magazine out of Columbus, where you guys are all from. And, uh, and now I do a little uh, publicity for Other People Records, a small label that's run by two guys from two bands. And, and that's, uh, that's kind of the short version. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, what are the the bands? You can don't uh, be shy. Oh, all right. Well, I, I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll plug this. I guess that's yeah, plug it away. <laughs> well, I'm I'm working with a, a new band called Ava Bree. Uh, they're an all female group out of Australia, and they have harmonies for days. Um, I'm working on, <laughs> on pitching one of their new music videos, and that'll be coming out pretty soon. Um, another band I'm really stoked on is uh, Tommy Boys, and uh, that's that's really guitar driven sort of emo rock, but it's all really noodly, and it's it's really cool to listen to. And then uh, there's a couple other acts, but they're not announced yet, so we'll talk about them another time. Yes, yes, I like noodles. So I like noodling guitars. That's great. I'll, I'll send them along. <laughs> Link in, links in your in your show notes. Uh, yes, yes. And then uh, if anyone is interested, uh, while you listen along, sort of like a transcription of sorts, you can find our show notes at alloftheabove.audio slash episodes slash zero one six. Yep. And we'll have links to all of the sorts of things that uh, Jacob has mentioned here and try to help you rep those bands a little bit as well. You also recently, did you do some backing vocals for an artist? Because I think you posted something on Twitter the other day that I listened to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually I did. Uh, last July, actually, I was there for the 4th of July. I was in Nashville with a group called Shapes and Colors, who I've done a little uh, publicity work for as well. Um, we booked them in the studio with Aaron Sprinkle, uh, who's a well-known producer and produced bands like Anne Berlin, uh, The Almost. Um, acceptance, um, a bunch of other bands that don't start with the letter A. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and we spent we spent about a week and a half down there and uh, recorded a record, and they let me jump in the studio here and there and do some backing vocals for some of the tracks. And their new EP on display came out this week. So awesome! Well, it was a pretty good song. So I will contribute that to your wonderful uh, backing vocals with the gang in the background of that song. <laughs> I'm just hoping to get a credit on Discogs. It's what we all dream of. That's like my one IMDb credit that I have that I'm so proud of. Uh, Oh, you're an IMDb? IMDb? Yeah. (laughs) 
What for? I, for a brief while, uh, when I was at OSU, I actually had a second major that I was working on in film. And um, during that time, I volunteered on all sorts of projects, which didn't give me any credits. But one of them that we tried to put onto a small like indie circuit for a while, which was called Killers, which uh, was just a short film, probably like around 30 to 40 minutes, if I remember right. And I was just a production assistant on that, but it was the middle of winter and I was <laughs> completely broke and didn't even own a coat and we recorded outside a lot. So they uh-huh. gave us all some mercy and put us onto IMDB as, uh, I think they put us as miscellaneous crew to be added on. <laughs> so, so that was my, in, despite all of the films that I helped uh, in some way contribute to, that was my one that got me the credit. But uh, one of the reasons that we had you on this week was because of your experience with uh, magazines. And um, that is actually our topic for this week. Um, So if you guys are cool with it, then I'm going to go ahead and kick us off uh, with our discussion about that. Take it. Yeah. So I'm going to lead the charge for us. And I wanted to talk about defining the medium of magazines. So it's been an interesting thing for me, and I'm not even sure if medium is the right word for it, because it might be that platform is a better word. But when I hear magazine, the first thing that comes to my mind typically is something along the lines of cosmopolitan. And that's a rather off-putting association. And because of that, I rarely ever find myself telling other people that I like magazines um, if I'm ever asked. And so that's sort of odd for me, considering the fact that there are great magazines out there and some with issues that I've held on to for years after they were printed. Um, So like I have copies of The Economist that are really old and copies from Paste Magazine, which no longer does print anymore, uh, that I've held on to for a really long time. And so despite the fact that are these great publications out there, I still draw a mental association with a particular style of magazine that is not necessarily appealing to me or to others. And that had me thinking about how we define the medium. So currently, it seems as if many of us still define it along the lines of something like Cosmopolitan or um, just like gossip magazines that are out there. And in the meanwhile, some magazines that are actually really great have moved to a purely digital release through tools like iOS's newsstand. Um, Others, including one of my personal favorites that I had mentioned, Pace Magazine, are operating purely as websites today, but they still carry the moniker of being a magazine. And all of that switch to these digital tools is happening as a result of the fact that the audience for printed magazines is continuing to decline. Um, So as the world of magazines is shifting and evolving due to a reduced audience for print, it seems as if the definition for the medium is also in need of a shift. And I'm curious as to how you guys would define magazines within the context of this digital age. So Jacob, I might put you on the spot and have you start for us. All right. Yeah, I don't think it's uncommon to to associate magazines with the the ones that you see at checkout. You know, when you're standing at Walmart and you're waiting in line for the person in front of you to get finished, and you you know you see all the gossip rags that have the latest on you know Brangelina and and whoever's losing weight. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I never really had that sort of uh, association. I, I grew up in a family where magazines were very specifically tailored to the interests of, of the person that was reading them. So, um, you know, my dad is a he's an avid reader of, of hunting magazines. So North American mm-hmm. Whitetail and Ducks Unlimited were, you know, pretty common place and, and you'd find them everywhere in my house. Um, my mom would read more, you know, of the homesy sort of stuff with like crafts and stuff like that that she would use as ideas when working with the, the kids in her group. 
groups and mm-hmm. uh, and you know I was always interested in music and things like that so you know music magazines like Spin and Alternative Press Rolling Stone um, even the occasional Mojo if I could find it those were the things that I was reading but I kind of came up uh, as a writer in the world of webzines um, which are you know more essentially blogs with a specific focus and layout mm-hmm. that emulates uh, that of a physical magazine in a digital context um, I've worked for magazines obviously which rely on digital facets and a number of other ways to maintain their business and you know that includes like the web facing portion of the publication for daily updates and multimedia um, and there are also digital copies of the magazine for you know the tablet age consumers like you said on newsstand so mm-hmm. at this point it's it's really hard to define magazine because um, I suppose like the the traditional sense of the word is is sort of dying out, and the ones that do survive are the ones that you do see at the checkout or um, at a bookstore, if you know where one of those are. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, it's it's evolving, and it kind of has to in order to to survive. Part of where the challenge for me and the definition is is that because of the connotation that the word carries now and the association we draw to it, it seems like a lot of the platforms that magazines have shifted to, um, people wouldn't necessarily call a magazine anymore. Uh, so like the newsstand approach, it clearly is trying to portray itself as a magazine, um, but in many ways those are coming across as like books or even independent applications that are just full of news. And they might carry some skeuomorphism and like have the appearance of a magazine, but they're still being presented in such new ways that people don't draw the mental association with a magazine as they would with, say, something like the gossip rags that you would find out on the newsstands. But Sean, how uh, would you go about defining the medium? So with magazines, they've evolved from uh, I think like the 17th century, 16th century, uh, where people just hand wrote them and they were just bound and then they were sort of passed around. Uh, and then as technology evolves, people like go along with it. So their idea of what a magazine is, compared to like even today's version of what a magazine is, is completely different. But the idea of a magazine just seems more like, um, forget like the medium, but just more having some kind of editor, someone curating like articles, ideas, stories, and then putting this into one thing, one package, and then that's presented to you, the reader. Uh, so for example, like, um, like Nick, <laughs> this might be crazy, but Nicholas Nickelodeon magazine. Uh, it's I subscribed to it when I was a little kid, and I got it every I think week, month. I don't know. It was the best. I got stickers. I got everything. But it it wasn't. Um, it was just based around Nickelodeon stuff, and that's what I wanted, and that's what I got. So if I like fast forward to today, ten years after, I would have well, you know, give or take some years. Uh, I'd probably still want that same kind of stuff, but probably more leaning towards the digital aspect, just because it was. I don't know. It was cool. I had all the magazines lined up and I had I organized them every which way like by color by date and then I, I don't know it was a bit bit crazy so I guess that would be my definition if you had just a collection of things curated by a person or a team to get out some kind of message that I guess is it's just a broad enough definition that it hits <laughs> on sort of what you would have with like these websites where like when Paste Magazine shifted to a purely website format, they still stuck very true to their original initiatives, which were music, culture, and lifestyle and that sort of order of preference. Mm-hmm. And they've maintained that curation, so they still have the editors. Um, we also look, since all of us are Apple users... Things like Macworld, which have completely cut most of their staff and dropped the print format. 
but they still maintain that level of curation and editing on their website. Mm -hmm. So that is perhaps like a good broad definition, although you could also use that to claim that other topics such as um, like podcasts, for example, which are curated content where we're like, we're focusing on design code and learning each time, even though we're discussing broader topics. So that is an interesting challenge with that definition is that it can consume other things that are very clearly not magazines. So there's like this weird gray area that we're trying to find sort of the Venn diagram of what a magazine is today. But Sam, since you also have a bit of a personal association (laughs) with magazines, how would you define the medium? To me, magazines in the digital age are still magazines. There is somebody there that curates everything and puts it all together, which is great. But they have an old format and they like the old format. So they stick to that even in the digital format that they go for. So I don't think the medium has been figured out quite yet. I'm trying to say things without jumping into my topic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's okay. We we can actually use this as our sort of transition point. Yeah, Um, go ahead. Yeah, so let us know what your topic is, and let's slide right into that. So my topic is being the medium, and because I work for a magazine company, and really the question that I'm going to try and answer and then ask you guys is, how does a magazine company survive in the digital world? Really, the best way to look at it is digital publications have been well-known since 2010. So we're talking five years we've been doing digital magazines. Before that, we're talking 80 to 90 years of publishing. Publication. So this is brand new for this industry. And working in the industry and constantly just going through different companies and checking to see how our competition is doing and our competition checking in on us, they're, everybody's pretty nice. We talk to each other and find out like what we're doing. And then there's also really cutthroat things that they do. But nobody in this industry knows what they're doing, especially people like the company I work for who's been in the business for 70 years. And it's a family-run business, so you have majority of the family running this for 70 years. They've had three editor-in-chiefs in these 70 years. So they like to stick to what they know, which is magazine, which is print. They know nothing about the digital world and how that's going. So you have companies out there that are kind of feeding on this, and it's kind of like lawyers who feed on elderly people and just Uh try and milk them for all their money. There's companies like that in the digital publishing area, like Zinio is a great, great one for this. What is Zinio? All they do is they come into your company and they say, hey, we will put your magazine on our platform if you give us X amount of dollars. But you have to do all this work and it's not going to be interactive and we're going to charge the same price and we're going to take a huge cut of that. So pretty much you're just taking what you know, which is your magazine and turning it into a flat PDF and tossing it out there. That's not right. It's not, but these companies are like, whoa, now we have a digital medium. Now we now we are in the digital space and they don't quite get it yet because they're not in the digital space, which then goes into licensing. It's like, oh yeah, we have 70 years worth of content. What can we do with this content? Oh, we will just sell it to other people so they can do things with it. And then this kind of gets into your 70-year-old company that has editors who have been there for not majority of the time, but a significant amount of time to see this transition from print to digital. And they still like to run everything like the print space. So it's just, it's a weird place for these companies to be. And a lot 
lot of them haven't survived this transition from print to digital. Some of the big names are just getting lucky and they're just going off their name. Wired Magazine actually has a phenomenal interactive digital portion of their print magazine. It's the exact same content in both, but they actually take the interactivity and the digital portion and kind of run with it and make it awesome. With that, I'm just I'm just going to ask how how does a magazine company survive in the digital world? Well, what I was going to say is that it sounds like some of your concerns here that you're expressing are centered around those that have been in the system for a while um, and their fear to adjust, which I'm wondering if it's not so much fear to adjust as much as it is that they just don't know what else is out there. So they keep hearing, we need to push for digital, we need to get online, we need to find ways into um, applications or onto e-readers and those sorts of things, but they are so unfamiliar with it that they are, it's like sending a child out to try and solve a quantum mechanics issue. Like they just are completely unprepared for what they're stepping into. And so they're trying to learn and they're stumbling through that, but they're having to stumble through it in a public open environment. Um, And then you may have other companies that recognize that vulnerability and like Zinio and try to jump in and monetize off of that. But it sounds like it may just be that in order for them to survive, they need to bring in people who are familiar with these other approaches. So people are familiar with um, web and people are familiar with iOS and uh, Android and heaven forbid Windows phone development. (laughs) And they need to sort of ask those people to help them look for a way to uh, transition. And it may also require having really, really good project managers who understand how to communicate between the, and I don't want to necessarily say old because it's almost like an offensive term, but the uh, group that has been publishing via print for a really long time and a good project manager would potentially be able to help them take their strategies and mesh it with the strategies of those that are good with web development and mobile development and all of these other tools and get them to find sort of this happy medium that will work for everyone. But Jacob, since you had experience dealing with webzines and systems that are new and aren't based upon these old, well-established platforms, um, Mm -hmm. what has your experience been with this or how you feel sort of the magazine world is set to deal with the digital interfaces? Well, I've seen a lot of magazines do things very well and uh, and a lot do them very wrong. Um, I think the wrong way to go about publishing digitally is is to go through services like Xenio or you know even newsstand when there are there are so many other there are other ways to to put your content into the hands of people that are using newer technologies to to take in their content. I've seen companies like Alternative Press uh, to bring them up again. They have a fantastic <laughs> publication that you can use to to look at the digital version of their magazine, and you know every it, it comes from their app. It's something that they control completely. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more interactivity that you can do with the content. So, you know, it's the same content that you would see in the print mag that you would get at your, um, you know, in the mail or at the gas station. But, you know, there's there's embedded video and exclusive video content from the magazine themselves. You know, they're branching out into areas that are, um, you know, more shareable online. And, and in turn, you know, they're, they're making more sales because that's where people are talking about it. That's where the musicians that they're covering are, are releasing their music. And the, the same goes for any industry. And I think that's that's why we're seeing a 
lot of um, tech magazines go by the wayside. And it's strange because, you know, when I first thought, like, heard of the concept of, of online publishing, um, at least for magazines, I thought that the tech and like the tech magazines like Macworld or PC World or, you know, any of these would, would be the first to jump to this new medium and, and present their content in a new and exciting way that younger readers would be able to click on it like they like to do, but also explore and learn and, and read longer form pieces like magazines like to publish in a, in a more interactive way. So the question of how to survive is obviously very difficult. There are certainly steps that you can take, things that you should avoid to stay above water. In my experience, the most important thing you can do as a publisher of a magazine is to care about the content, stay focused, and be open to the current carrying your publication. You know, so often I see magazines sticking to a focused topic or set of topics when they should be growing. You know, as an audience grows, so should the magazine. Um, otherwise, you fall into this sort of trap where you're not only running out of topics to write about, you know, that will suit the demographic you think you have, but you're alienating this new audience that you could potentially be, you know, potentially have by branching out. And, you know, this is important for advertising as well, but that's a whole other thing. Your point about how they have to shift and adjust, not necessarily in the way that they're presenting their uh, content or the information that they have in their publication, um, but also they have to shift to the audience that's going to change. Because as you do move to these new digital formats, you're going to have accessibility to a much larger base of potential audience than you would have before. So if you were just print and you only showed up in newsstands or bookstores, somebody in a, another side of the world may never have been able to see or stumble upon your print issue. But now that you're in a digital environment, anyone can access that through the web. And so that does mean that you may now have a much larger audience in another part of the world. And in order to keep yourself relevant and keep yourself afloat as a business, um, you have to adjust to the changes of who your new larger audience base is. And I think a lot of people are afraid to do that. That. Um, we have a sense of loyalty sometimes to our customers, but at the same time, you have to remember that your customers are a shifting and growing tide. And if you don't respond to the new wave coming in, then you're just going to end up with no audience at all. But Sean, what were your thoughts on this? Going off like the newsstand idea, like the fact that you go up to like a traditional newsstand, there are only so many spots. And to get there, you would have to have sold stuff like it should sell. So the guy that's running the newsstand actually gets money. So the only things they stock are the people are the things that people demand. With a digital newsstand, it's it, there isn't as much of that um, scarcity aspect. It, it's not like, oh, no, we can only have like 30 magazines up here at one time. No, you can have it unlimited. It doesn't really matter. So the fact that like that gatekeeper is now gone, it it's great for people that just want to create stuff, but it doesn't help finding the good stuff. Like it, it's hard for the good to rise from the top, rise to the top. Um, since there's a, the signal to noise ratio of all that stuff is, eh, it's not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, just that idea, like, yes, it's a good thing that anyone can just publish on a blog and then put it out there and then anyone visit the URL. Um, but that just means um, for people that want to find stuff, it just it's a lot more to wade through. So yeah, instead of going um, and relying on a, the newsstand vendor to pick like the good things, quote unquote, uh, you can follow like specific people um, that you trust their taste and like, oh, this guy usually posts really good stuff. Somehow he finds it and then he only shares the stuff that is relevant to me so i'll follow him so we become like like even ourselves like the stuff that we share show sends says something about us 
and how that works is it's just a we it just sort of flips the table on its um not side not on its top i don't it just flips the table and it just keeps rotating i, I don't know where it lands no gravity. no gravity it just keeps yeah going. it just keeps going <laughs> frictionless environment yeah. it's like uh, that uh, little um character thing uh, like the little guy that flips the table when he's mad and it puts only uh oh. characters you know what i mean the emoji thing yeah yeah, yeah. the one brian sends yeah. to us all the time <laughs> yeah. i'll uh yeah. i'll put it in the uh, skype chat yeah that thing. i think you bring up a good point um and and that's why magazines are in trouble you know and that's why blogs are, are rising um in in such a rapid way uh instead of having to walk down to your local newsstand if you even have one of those all you have to do is get onto twitter and that's the advantage of being online as opposed to uh you know being a, a physical sort of publication or even a digital publication in outlets uh, such as Enio or newsstand mm-hmm. um you know because that's an extra step you have to think to go into newsstand yeah. And I mean, I, I, I would ask all of you guys how often you go into newsstand, but I, <laughs> I assume it's probably very little. Um, I've probably gone into newsstand once and that was on accident when I was trying to click and drag it into a folder back when that wasn't a possibility. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, that was the greatest feature of iOS 7 was being able <laughs> yep. to hide newsstand. Absolutely. That 100% the best feature. <laughs> but it's that extra step. You have to go in there and you have to you have to think to open newsstand, uh, something that you probably don't use very often, search for what it is you're looking for, and then um, choose to, to purchase that item where instead um you know you're on twitter already you're already going to open that up and so you're you know if you're not already following something you'll see a retweet about something or uh, somebody that you're you know following will will share a link to a blog Mm -hmm. or to a webzine or a digital magazine of sorts and you'll get the content there as opposed to having to search out for yourself yeah and i think that's what's what's really hurting the magazine industry yeah the power of like the collective conscious like voting upvoting or downvoting the things that are good uh, it seems to be a nice little equalizer within the whole field. And the tools and platforms that do that the best where they allow you to truly identify what the public is asking for or demanding are much better. So that's where like newsstand and even just looking at apps that are produced by magazines, if they're put into the iOS app store, getting attention in the app store is incredibly difficult. And so tools that are out there, whether it be like a blog that just does a great job of curating what the like best new articles are that are being written that's going to be much more reliable for people than something where it's just like a hundred random clicks suddenly makes this completely garbage magazine be the top of newsstand. So that is like a really interesting dilemma, I think, for magazines in the digital age is trying to find how they can earn the favor of the sort of new determiners of taste out there when it comes to magazines. Determiners, tastemakers, I feel like that's what they're called. Tastemakers. Tastemakers. I tried to be too fancy <laughs> with it, I think. <laughs> Those who need to be instantly gratified. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we've sort of hit on this topic fairly well, but did you guys have any final thoughts to Sam's discussion on this? No. It's weird, like, how we're doing it, but my topic sort of flows from his topic. Crazy. It's like we planned this. Hmm. <laughs> it's like a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, just uh, my idea was just uh, like, what is the role of a major publisher in a world where you can just self-publish? Just anyone, any takers, any takers. It may be to the point where it is major publishers have to transition more to helping self-publishers gain attention to the. It's almost essentially shifting major publishers to being marketers for smaller self-published works. So instead of focusing so much on the strategy of getting a certain 
cut of each book, um, but instead getting a sort of upfront price from people who are self-publishing for helping them spread their word. But that's, I don't know, more of a marketing strategy. So it may be that major publishers just don't have a place and I'm uncertain of what their role will be. But what do you guys feel on this? Yeah, I feel like major publishers need to be the mentor in the industry and create the service and kind of just bring everybody in or actually be the curator bringing all these things together and kind of just publish from there. Uh, and their publishing would just be publishing self-publishers, which kind of turns into the record industry, yeah. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like there there are all these big wigs out there and they're kind of being undercut by all the, the tiny small folk and they don't know what to do so they're trying to find themselves in this world and i f i feel like that's these publishers become the zinnios of the internet and they become these big publishers that are trying to help everybody else out I think it's idealistic to believe that some of the big publishers are, are helping out the little guys. Yeah. But at least in my experience, I'm finding that more and more of the big publishers, uh, rather than, you know, helping or, um, or or mentoring any sort of way, uh, rather they're buying out mm -hmm. the, the smaller publications that are essentially beating them out in content. Because um, when it comes down to it, that's, that's what it's all about. Um, whether or not these big publishers care about the quality of the content is one thing, but they absolutely believe in, in content content itself and in the way that it brings customers to, you know, whether it be like web pages or to the magazine themselves, because at the end of the day, their main concern is how many people are seeing the ads that they're selling, because that's how they're making their money. And when I was with Under the Gun Review, uh, we were an independently publishing web scene for at least the two years um, before my interest started to fade, because we, we actually sold our company to Spin Media, um, who at the time was called Buzz Media, formerly BuzzNet, um, who then bought out Spin Magazine. Uh, changed their name to Spin Media, then became bankrupt and uh, were bought out by their primary investors once again and renamed Spin Group. Wow. It's a very long <laughs> and complicated thing. And uh, I, I'll put some links in the show notes if you want to read it. But, um, basically, they bought out a small community of blogs that I kind of came up with um, in the alternative music scene and dubbed us uh, Absolute Voices. And we were sort of um, the the punk branch of their music publishers. So, um, you know, they have like Stereo Gum and Spin and, uh, you know, a variety of other bigger outlets. And then they have us. And that was like Absolute Punk, uh, Property Zach, Alternative Press, uh, and us. And Punk News, I think we're in there as well. And originally, uh, the idea was that, uh, you know, this big publisher would provide us uh, the content makers with technical support to upgrade our websites and make them look nicer and function better and uh, service our readers to um, find our content easier. And um, in the end, uh, a lot, a lot, if not all of the promises that they made were sort of broken. And we were stuck in this limbo where, you know, we had this claim to a big name that supposedly had our back when in actuality, uh, they just sort of bought us stuck ads on our site, moved us to their servers and didn't do a thing about us for three years. So if you look at Under the Gun now, uh, it has a slight facelift. It looks a little bit different than what you'd find on the Wayback Machine for 2011. Um, but in the time between uh, 2011 when we sold and uh, I think 2013 when I left, I had designed maybe seven different reincarnations of uh, the Under the Gun theme. Wow. And none of them came to fruition. And, uh, and and that's sort of a similar case for a lot of the websites that Spin Me have bought. And I don't mean to pick on them, um, or maybe I do, but um, they're just a really good example of a company that you know had the potential to push a certain brand 
brand of content into into the eyes of more people that might find it interesting, uh, but rather just sort of shut it down. And uh, you know, I'm seeing that happen with a lot. They, they've actually completely shut down websites, um, not just in music, but movies as well. Video game or video gum got shut down. A bunch of other publications, and you know, this this is happening across the publishing industry because it is cutthroat. You know, so rather than you know pushing these these writers and these editors and these publishers into um, an atmosphere where they they feel supported and they have the opportunity to to share their voices and uh, their tastes with with people they're just kind of buying them out sticking ads on there and then sort of moving the the people around there within their own company to support their interests so it, it's sort of a it's an interesting game because you know there there are success stories as well I'm sure um, there are companies that are doing good things with with smaller groups or you know buying out other people and, and moving them around but everything's in flux and I think it's gonna still be a little while until things settle down and we actually see where the uh, like the magazine publishing industry sort of lands but there's so much movement at the moment that it, it's sort of hard to tell it also makes me wonder how with newer sites coming on or newer digital magazines and digital publications that are self-started, I'm wondering if they're falling trapped to what a lot of startups are, which is that their entire goal is I'm going to obtain a excise audience and then hope and pray <laughs> that I can win the favor of a larger entity to buy me. Um, and then I will go on and I will start my next business or I will just reap the benefits of the large paycheck that I got. And that I like, I fear may start happening to great self publishers um, like these smaller magazines that are out there is that they might fall victim to that because they know that there is the danger of a larger publication expressing legitimate interest and then not giving them the, uh, fair end of the deal as happened it sounds like with under the gun i also wonder if some are just intentionally trying to establish that and if devoted audiences who found what they think is a fitting um, digital publication may find themselves suddenly without the magazine or digital platform that they came to love so it's just a weird like balance between trying to be bought and trying to sell i guess um, so trying to be bought is where you want the support of the larger publication but trying to sell is where you just want to make the the money at the end of the day i think sam nailed it with the with the record label analogy yeah i think that was exactly uh that's it i mean yep. everybody's trying to get signed and it doesn't always turn out the way you think it does yeah and it's maybe even more dangerous with the public because like a lot of these, I don't even realize some of these smaller um, websites and smaller magazines that are out there are actually owned by these larger publishers. Um, whereas like with record labels, I can often identify the trace back to Sony or any of these other larger um, record producers. But with print or digital magazines, I don't, I, it's harder for me to trace those because I can't even think to who like the major print uh, publishers are. But Sean, what was the thought that you had? Going along with uh, Sam's idea of the music industry, I I feel like the music industry is a nice like case study of what people shouldn't do. <laughs> uh, it just because like it, it played out so well and so badly at the same time um, with their uh, they like resisting technology and then iTunes and then piracy and all, you know all that stuff and then Taylor Swift. 
and Taylor Swift. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, John, no, Pac-Man and John Fogarty. No, Dan Fogerberg. Uh, those are the two things. And, and Hula Hoops. That's a quote from some movie, and I'm not sure what, but those three things. I'm so confused right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, uh, Pac-Man, uh, Dan Fogelberg, and Hula Hoops are um, why America is the way it is today. I don't know. I, that's, uh, that's a paraphrase of a movie that I don't know and have never heard of. You kids with your loud music and your Dan Fogelberg, your Zima, Hula Hoops, and Pac-Man video games, don't you see... People today have attention spans that can only be measured in nanoseconds. <laughs> that almost sounds like something from Almost Famous. But I'm almost certain it's not. It, it's definitely not. I would. I would. It, I don't know how I learned that. Anyway, music industry. Um, but the, the, yeah, they're the self implosion of how it all sort of played out. And I was uh, thinking like like the Macklemore uh, model. <laughs> Do you guys uh, know like how he like got onto radio stations and all that fun stuff? I always hear it as a independent success story, but I've never actually taken the time to look it up. So like, what is the sort of background there? Yeah, I I think it, pretty much he made the album, produced it with that other guy. I don't know the name of right now. <laughs> and then they got like a million dollars. And I think they use like Sony or BM, uh, one of the companies and they use them like, hey, here's a million dollars. Promote this. Do what you can. I've, I've done everything. You, I just, I'm just using you. I'm buying your services. As a, I'm using your weight to propel what I've made. And I, I feel like that is a great way of doing it if you have great stuff. Uh, it's a bad way to do it if you suck. <laughs> uh, so like that idea of just doing it on your own and then you only, like the big publishers are, they're great for their connections, their resources, their like international like reach, uh, which a single person is uh, to do all of that would be roughly impossible. And I've been informed that what I was talking about is a basketball quote uh, from the guys that created South Park. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that was sticking out in my mind, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, did we have sort of any other thoughts to Sean's topic uh, before we start to close things out? Or Jacob, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to bring? Yeah, I, I have another point to, to Sean's. We're talking about the role of the big publisher, but I think there's a lot to be said about the role of the small publisher and um, you know, in the way that the uh, the landscape is changing for for publishing, whether it be in print or digital. Um, there are there are a lot of small guys that are making making a pretty good living and and making teams and you know hiring people and and promoting objects and, and services and and things in ways that magazines have been doing for years and years. Um, but they're doing it on their own and they don't need any help. Um, you know, with with sponsorships and ads they're able to do it on their own. And I think a lot of um, examples are, are found probably within the same publications that you guys are reading, like Mac Stories and Six Colors and Daring Fireball, mm-hmm. 9 to 5 Mac. You know, these these guys are, are basically, you know, they're starting things up on their own and they're doing it from their bedrooms and their garages and they're able to do it without the assistance of these people that, you know, have been doing it for so long. So I think there's something to be said about the people who are starting publishing within today's environment rather than those who have been doing it for a number of years and are sort of coming to terms with the current environment and trying to adapt because it all comes down to Darwinism. You know, there there are those that are gonna that are gonna thrive and do well and they're gonna change and they're gonna survive. And then there are those that just aren't. And uh, and I like to I like to see the little guys come up and, and show up the the people that have been doing it for a long time. 
Yeah, and there's um, like especially when I look to things like Six Colors, which for those unfamiliar, Jason Snow, who worked with MacWorld, one of the publications we mentioned earlier, when MacWorld got rid of the majority of its staff, Jason had identified that that was sort of on the horizon and decided to leave and started his own site. And it seems to be doing really well. Um, he's also a great podcaster with tons of wonderful shows. So we'll make sure that we link over to that. Yeah. But one of the things that really interests me with those is a lot of people hear like of these small sort of successes and assume that it was luck that those people were able to get there but it, it is a lot of really hard work that they're putting into it and they're thinking of new creative ways to go about um, monetizing their their business and their interests so i'll make sure that we include in our show notes a link to john gruber who um, writes daring fireball uh, one of the best um, sort of apple and tech-centered websites out there and he did a he did a talk um, about how anyone can jump into this train and establish a strong website. And he also talks about his journey to find an innovative way to go about monetizing it. Um, and it is something where like, it, it's incredible to see not only small success stories like that, but see that it, it does seem tangible for everyone to start doing, especially with the like new digital and technological advances that we have. Uh, I mean, absolutely. Um, I challenge anybody who who thinks that these small publishers getting to where they are now was by luck to read one of Frederico Vitici's articles on MaxStories.com. If you can get all the way through that, I'm sure you'll be convinced that it, it takes an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of time and effort um, to formulate the opinions and do the research that uh, these guys do on the things that you know you, you're potentially going to use every single day. And I think that you know Daring Fireball and John Gruber uh, is a huge inspiration to a lot of the people that are, are writing today. And as a primary example of that, um, look to basically any post on any of the, you know, like ad week or uh, business journal or business week or, or whatever publication you happen to read about the Apple watch and its effect on Apple and um, where that's taking the, the watch industry and the technology industry. Every single one of those are going to be linking back to either nine to five Mac on their speculation or daring fireball. And I think that speaks volumes. These small publishers are getting huge head nods from these gigantic monoliths in business publishing and that takes a lot of hard work to do yeah and it's all um like following like the actual person that's writing it like jason snell MacWorld, but then he did his own thing and people followed him because he was him and they followed john gruber because he is john gruber so if he were to do something else people would still follow him because they know him from something else so the idea of just following the person that you enjoy rather than following the big entity that might surround them is a uh, sort of fun <laughs> and also absolutely yeah and also um on the whole uh, john gruber thing i i must and i must note that on january january 5th uh, i was on his uh link list which was uh <laughs> pretty awesome <laughs> which I, I still need to get you a celebratory beer oh uh, yeah that was i don't i that, that was just uh out of the blue it, it was just a link to a tweet that i tweeted at him but hell i'm i'm there <laughs> put that on the fridge that's cool <laughs> That's awesome. I think you bring up a really good point, too. Every single publication that I've ever worked for, um, whether it be Under the Gun, uh, The Scene Press, or Substream Magazine, I've always, 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 the first thing that I've done is to, to get in there and boost the CEO of not only the website, but the writers. I think it's very important for every writer um, in any sort of medium to, um, to advertise themselves, not just the work that they do, because... Uh, the work that they do, um, you know, everything that they do is is an extension of the magazine. And while their thoughts and their feelings may not um, may not necessarily reflect mm -hmm. 
the attitudes of the publication that they work for, um, what they do say has, you know, has value and um, people find interest in that. So, you know, advertise yourself when you're doing any sort of work. And that's not just in publishing, whether it be your art or uh, development, you know, leave your mark and, and let people know where else they can find you because you may not stay at that company forever. You may not write for that magazine or that blog um, for the rest of your life. And it's important to keep those people with you because those are the people that are going to keep you um, not only motivated, um, but paid. So uh, <laughs> always, always, always um, advertise yourself. Well, to uh, that point in advertising yourself, since I think that was a good spot for us to start to end the show on, um, where can people keep up with you and the things that you're working on now? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Curbside Audio and my blog at Curbside.audio, where I talk about music, writing, technology, and movies with a uh, primary focus on Star Wars. <laughs> Good choice. How excited are you for the end of this year? I am so excited. I I can't even tell you, but I can blog about it. So <laughs> well, we will we will look forward to all of the posts on that. And then, as we traditionally do for the show, we defer to Sam for our final thoughts. So, Sam, what did you want to take us out on? So, I have another question for everybody. Kind of putting everyone on the spot. <clears throat> Do you guys have a favorite magazine? Whether you read it now or read it in the past, do you have a favorite? If so, what is it? While I am not as devoted of a fan since the switch to purely digital, um, Paste Magazine, which I mentioned a few times, was probably always my favorite. I will, uh, I'll go my top three. How about that? Uh, first one, just because it has a nice place in my heart, Nickelodeon Magazine. That The ads. The ads. <laughs> they just got me. I'm sorry. I watched Nickelodeon and... Nickelodeon magazine, please. And I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> I did ask my parents. I did. And they said yes. Uh, she said yes. Yeah. That's a that's completely different. <laughs> um, then the second one would be skateboarding magazine. They had amazing photography. And when I skateboarded, I was just obsessed. And uh, the third one would be a digital one that I don't, they called it a magazine. I don't even know what it was. It's like blog posts with mixed with zines. It was the plug.net. And I, I don't have, know how to categorize it other than weird. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, re I remember you sending that to me once and I got completely lost in there for a very long time. Yeah. It, so we'll make sure that we link to that. Yeah, my favorite one, uh, I guess, articles or magazines. Uh, there's two. Uh, one was uh, Murder Kroger. Uh, there's this, this horrible Kroger in Atlanta, and they just have pictures documenting their trip during that. And it's just like you couldn't believe, like, this is how it was. And they were like, oh, this is actually pretty good for <laughs> uh, Murder Kroger. Um, and the other one was Mystery Can, where you just get, like, I think 10 uh, canned foods, and you tear off the label, and then you give it to another person and then they give you 10 and then that's what you eat for the next three or four days so it can be <laughs> literally anything in these cans <laughs> that sounds dangerous oh yeah and i think they also had like a sports bracket uh for candy or something else like that and they figure out like what was the best one so yeah it was a just an interesting thing all right so jacob what are yours all right, I'll take you chronologically through uh, three or four. Uh, I guess um, Boy's Life, which is the Boy Scout magazine. I was a Boy Scout growing up, and uh, I'm a, I'm an that. Eagle Scout, so hey, go. Me too. Yeah, well done. Good job. <laughs> yeah. That's cute. Um, yeah, so Boy's Life magazine was one that I, I read a lot growing up, and uh, I guess from there, um, Game Pro magazine, magazine, rest in peace. Uh, that was my favorite magazine. After that, um, really into video games for a time, even though I didn't have either a PS2. 
3 or Xbox 360. Um, I skipped an entire generation, but I still love to read about the video games until they stopped publishing and started sending me PC World instead. By that time, I already had a Mac, <laughs> and that was awful. Uh, and then from there, Alternative Press and uh, Rolling Stone Magazine have been my go-tos. Gotcha. All right, so Sam, what are yours? Yeah. Uh, so I probably have a few, and one of them is not the company I work for, which is funny. I mean, maybe back in the day, but not now. Yeah, I, I was tempted to list that one, but I figured we would keep it a mystery. Yeah, we'll keep it a mystery. Uh, Backpacker Magazine is my favorite. I've been subscribing to it for maybe 10 years now, and I still get the subscription every single month. But there's a recent article, and the whole reason this whole thing was brought up was because I went to the website, and the article was actually on the website, which is awesome. Uh, but there's an article about Heather Anderson. She hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, and I don't know if she still does, but held the record for the fastest through hike uh, for anyone, not just a female, but anyone. That's awesome. The article is A Ghost Among Us, and it's it's a really good read. I encourage everybody to read it. All right. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes, but sounds like we've uh, reached the end of this wonderful episode. So thank you again, Jacob, for being so willing to join us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. That wraps up the 16th episode of All of the Above. Thank you again for listening. If you want to check out our show notes, head on over to alloftheabove.audio slash episode slash 016. And as always, we want to hear your feedback. You can go to alloftheabove.audio slash review to leave a rating in iTunes. While you're at it, subscribe to the show so that each new episode is downloaded automatically every week. If you want to get in touch with us directly, you can also go to alloftheabove.audio slash contact. Or if you want to reach us through Twitter, we can be found collectively at Above Podcast. And finally, if you want to chat with us individually on Twitter, Sam can be found at Sam Banner, Sean is at SPJPGRD, and I am at Brian M. Brush. We will look forward to joining you all next week when we discuss maps with comrade of the show, Graham Welling. In the meantime, go visit your doctor's office and see if you can replace all of those absurdly old magazines with your own handmade zines. <laughs>